If you have a Bible, turn to Daniel chapter 1. I'm good. Daniel chapter 1. want to invite you to stand, if you're physically able, for the reading of our text tonight from God's Word. We'll be reading from Daniel chapter 1, verses, we're actually going to read 1 through 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. It's a great word. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, another good name, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter into the king's service. Among those who, among the, these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So just, let's set the stage just a a little bit. Uh, We have... Uh, a, a group of people who are the, the people of God the, the, in the kingdom of Judah. Um, and God has sent a number of messengers and be like, this is, this is the thing that we're up against, guys. If you, if you do not start obeying me and actually being the people of God, there's going to be something coming down the road and it's not going to be good. I'm more committed to you being the people of God than I am you being comfortable. Uh, and, and, and he keeps sending person after person after person with the same message. And wouldn't you know it, they just decide not to listen. And so finally, uh, what we just read is the judgment that God sends on them. It, it, God actually not just lets it happen, but he orchestrates it. He orchestrates this particular judgment on them, which is meant to be like a good shaking to them. He's like, look, I, I am committed to you being the people of God, and I'm going to shake you awake. And so what it is that happens is this, this evil empire from Babylon comes, kills a good number of the people, takes a good portion of the people back to Babylon, particularly the best and the brightest of all of them. And the, the centerpiece of the story that we're going to read about is a man named Daniel, who, when he is captured, is 15 years old. So... Jordan, yes, you, Jordan, will you stand up for us? Jordan, how old are you? Fifteen. You're fifteen. How old was Daniel? Fifteen. So people, when you're thinking about Daniel being captured, who should they be thinking about, Jordan? Me? Yes. Thank you. Let's give Jordan a very big hand. Daniel was 15 
years old. He has been identified as someone who apparently is quite good looking, who is very smart, who is capable of being trained, and he's got three other friends that are with him. And they represent the best and the brightest of this group of people who have been moved 1,000 miles away. There's a very, very good chance. Treeman, will you stand up? There's a very good chance that Treeman was killed. You may sit down. So here is Jordan. She has been shipped a thousand miles away from her family. She might know these three friends. She probably made friends with them if she didn't. There's a chance that at least one of her parents was killed. She's been shipped a thousand miles away and has been told, you're going to train for three years and then you're going to serve the king that just killed your dad. So you have, you have these, these, these groups of people who have been moved a thousand miles. They're like, what does it mean for us to even live? Like, how can God be good in the midst of all of this? What are we supposed to do? There's a there's psalm. I think we've got a slide from Psalm 137. It's these, this is what they wrote. They said, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. We're supposed to be playing these things and singing them. How in the world are we supposed to be singing these songs? For our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. And they say, hey, how about now you sing one of those songs about Zion? How can we sing the songs of the Lord while we are in a foreign land? And they take their harp and they hang it on a tree. How are we supposed to live like this? How are we supposed to move on? How are we supposed to pretend that God is good? And we're going to take our harp and we're going to go home. So let's just so we're like we're understanding God has not just let this happen. God has orchestrated this. And the reason that he's orchestrated is because of their crazy 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 ongoing disobedience. And so they they they're crying out to God they're like are you there? Are you good? Can you hear us? How are we supposed to do this thing anymore? Tell us something. Will you speak? Will you give us a word of what we should do? And so God sends a prophet named Jeremiah. And this is what it is that Jeremiah says to them. And I think we've got this on the screen. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So you have a group of people a large number of whom have lost people they're very close to. They are in a three-year program to serve the evil king who killed their dad or their mom, their brothers or sisters, their aunts, their uncles, their cousins, whoever it might be. They're a thousand miles from home. They don't know how to worship. They're hanging up their instruments. And they're like, God, tell us what to do. And the memo that they get back, the memo that they get back is, is essentially this. Help the evil king be successful. If I'm them, I'm like, I, I feel like you got the wrong letter from us. You have, and the answer that you're sending back, clearly you read someone else's mail. 
and there was something in the email system where you meant to send that to someone else. Could we get the right letter? Because just, uh, it's really important we underline, Daniel is in the capital city of the evil empire, and he is 15 years old. And the, the thing that he is being told is make sure that that evil king is successful. So let's, let's make sure we're underlining even more. Daniel, let's like, this is like an SAT, ACT question. Daniel is to Babylon as Jordan is to ISIS. Daniel is to Babylon as Jordan is to ISIS. Treman, how would you feel, let's say you, you survived, you actually weren't dead. How, how would you feel if like the word from the Lord is, hey, my daughter's been captured. She's now in ISIS-held territory. And what God is saying to her is make sure that ISIS is successful. That probably wouldn't go down well. Like that would feel all sorts of funny. And it would feel more than funny. Like we, we probably, like what do we do with a word like that? And here is Daniel, 15 years old, and he's being told, this is what you want to do. You want to put down roots. Get your favorite recliner. You're going to be sitting in it. Get a lamp that you like. Find a wife. Marry her. Have kids. Make sure that they have kids. Enjoy the life that you have here. And make sure that the evil king does really, really well. Because if he does well, you're going to do well. And all the people of God would do well. Does that make sense? No. It does not make sense. But Daniel does it anyway. Like just, th- this isn't the point of the sermon, but just as a very brief aside, there will be times where God tells you to do things and they don't make sense. Your job isn't to do the things that make sense as a follower of Jesus. Your job is to follow Jesus. And so we, we measure success by whether or not we're faithful and following and being obedient to Jesus. A lot of times what he asks us to do will make sense. There will be times it doesn't. And in the scriptures, this is one of those times, it doesn't, like, in hindsight, we can look at it now, 3,500 years later, like, oh, I see what God was doing. But we don't often have that. Sometimes we just have this moment. Let's fast forward. Babylon has fallen now. Um, Daniel is still trapped in this capital city. So in 1999, I signed up for a checking account. And I think it was through this bank called First Union. In 2000, it was bought by Wachovia. And then Wachovia was bought out by Wells Fargo. And so here I am in 2017, and I am still part of... I still have the same checking account that I did in 1999, and yet this thing keeps getting bought out by other people. Like, that is essentially Daniel's experience at this point. He's stuck in this capital city, he is trapped there, he cannot lead, and the empire has just been conquered. And this is what it is that it says. We're going to go ahead and, if you have a Bible, flip six chapters forward to Daniel chapter 6. So the Babylonians have been conquered. They are now, he he is now the, the prisoner of what are called the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians. And this is what it is that happens in verse chapter 3. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king, the new king, planned to set him over the whole kingdom. 
At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Jordan, will you stand up? Where we started, where where Jerusalem was besieged, it fell, and then Jordan, 15 years old, is taken to this land, a thousand miles away, with a group of people that, by and large, she does not know. A bunch of time passes, Babylon eventually falls, the Medes and the Persians take over. And at this point in the story, in Daniel chapter 6, Jordan is no longer 15 years old, she's 81. She's 81 years old. You can sit down, Jordan. A lot of time has passed, and the comment that the scriptures give is in the roughly 70 years that has passed, no one can find anything to say bad about Daniel. And they're looking for it. This is what they're saying about him. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. So here is my question. How did Daniel not only survive, like physically, how did he live in this evil empire, not get killed, but stay faithful to what God said in serving the common good of an empire he wanted nothing to do with? I'll read it again. How did Daniel not only survive, but stay faithful to what God said in serving the common good of an empire that he wanted nothing to do with? The reason this matters is because you have the same call. You have the same call. You, at this moment, are in an empire. And it is bent and it is warped in ways that are different than Daniel's experience in the empire that he was in, but it's still an empire. And it is not inherently good. And so Daniel's call of not only surviving, but being faithful to what God was calling him for finding the common good, is as important for us to understand how he did it today as it was for him 3,500 years ago. It is the life that we are in right now. So this is what I want to do just very quickly. According to the scriptures, like how did Daniel do this? How did he actually survive and be faithful so that when they were trying to find a way to hammer him, they couldn't find anything? He was so faithful to this word that Jeremiah the prophet had given that they were like, I mean, dang it if we can't find a thing. So let's, let's flip backwards. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 1. We're going to look at three very brief stories with Daniel. How did he do this? So Daniel is in this training program, and we we read a little bit earlier that he is being given food from the king's table. He's giving wine from the king's table. So the richest person, the most powerful person on earth, is more than likely eating and drinking the very best food. And it is all food that Daniel is not supposed to eat. He is not supposed to touch it. And this is what he does in in verse 8 of Daniel chapter 1. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, and with good reason, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of your stupidness. 
Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food. And treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to do this and tested them for ten days. Essentially, Daniel said this, look, you can eat all of this, and I'm going to eat water and vegetables. And after 10 days, you just tell me, Toya just loves this experiment. You just tell me who looks healthier, more energetic, and has a sharper and keener mind. You go ahead and drink all of the wine, and you eat all of that food, and I'll do this thing. And look, if it doesn't work out, then I'll do it your way. I will do it your way. Here, for Daniel, it, it wasn't about whether or not the food was good or not. It was he was not permitted to eat it because it was going to defile his body based on what God had said him to do. For him, again, success is obedience. Is obedience. And so Daniel was not supposed to eat the food just because God told him not to. Let me give you a couple of reasons why he should have eaten the food. A couple of reasons. Number one. If you're the person that stands up and it's like, hey, I know the king, who, by the way, killed my dad, said to eat this food, I don't think I'm going to do it. You're probably not going to live very long. Another thing, if you are with a group of people and you're all supposed to eat the food and you're the squeaky wheel, there's going to be a lot of pressure from your friends and family members and people who don't know you and are going to be like, hey, buddy, sit down, eat the food. It's called peer pressure. It existed 3,500 years ago, just like it does today. If, if, if he's actually good at his job, and there seems to be reason to think that he would be, he is one of the smartest and brightest people of a whole civilization of people, he is going to, he's, he's going to be jeopardizing future advancement. You could be treated this well, or if you're really good at your job, you could be treated this well. Another reason to eat the food. Another reason to eat the food. It's good food. Look, you can eat vegetables and water. Or you can have chicken tenders and french fries and honey mustard. And you can have shindigs, chocolate salted caramel cake. Or you can have vegetables and water. I leave that into your head. Another reason to eat the food. They're a thousand miles away from everyone. Everyone's eating the food. You're a thousand miles away. Just eat the food. No one's going to know. All the people who are the leaders who are back home are back home a thousand miles away. No one's going to know. It'll be our little secret. Another reason to eat the food. Just at this really guttural, instinctual level, you know what, God? You didn't protect us back home. Why shouldn't I eat the food? I'm going to shake my fist because I am shaking my fist at you, God. Why should I do what you tell me to do? Didn't work out too well for Treman, did it? Sometimes there are a million reasons to consume the goods of the empire. And you want to consume it. And you still have to say no. You have to say no. A couple of weeks ago, Aaron gave a sermon 
where she talked about, like, look, the way that you need to cultivate your mind is that it would fix itself on things that are good and right and true and trustworthy and lovely in front of the eyes of the Lord. There are a million different opportunities for you to consume the goods of our empire that we live in. You can consume it like by what you eat. You can consume it by what you drink. You can consume it by the drugs that you take. You can consume it by the things that you watch. You can consume it by the things that you touch. You can consume it by the things that you hear. You have a million different bingeable ways to consume the goods of the empire. And sometimes you have to say, I will not be defiled. Now, I'm not saying you have to say no to everything. This is part of that discernment thing. This is the grace that we live in in Jesus Christ. But we are told in that ocean of grace, don't defile yourself. Sometimes in the face of a million different choices, you have to say no to consuming the goods of the empire. Go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 3, our second story. A really famous story that you have probably heard before. One thing that you might have missed, there is a... As we are learning, the evil king has a pretty large ego. Uh, And so he's like, I have a really good idea. This is what we're going to do. We're going to build a giant golden statue to me. We're going to put a furnace at the foot of it. We're going to get all the citizens of the capital out. And when the horn blows, everyone's going to bow down and worship me. Because you know what? It feels good to be an evil king. If if you're going to have this kind of power and be this evil, you might as well build a giant statue and have everyone worship you as if you are God. And so he does. And the horn blows and everyone bows down except three people. These three friends of Daniel named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, they look at him like, hey, I don't know if you knew. If You know that furnace that's at the foot of that? If you don't bow down, that's where you're going. And they're like, yeah. The horn blows again. They don't bow down. So let's pick up at verse 19 of Daniel chapter 3. The Nebuchadnezzar, who I like to call little Nebi, was furious <laughs> with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his attitude toward them changed. They used to be his favorite. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego... I skipped one. The command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up these three... And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. And they lived. We we won't read the rest of the story. There's this this interesting thing that happens. In chapter 1, you see a 15-year-old stand up and is like, I'm not going to do it. A couple of chapters later, you see three people. Now, these three people we learn a couple chapters before have been given to Daniel. It's not just that he's friends with them. He's now their leader. He's not just their leader like, do what I tell you to do. He is, the understood thing is he is their spiritual leader. And this is the thing that we miss. In chapter 1, it's Daniel saying like, I'm not going to do it. In chapter 3, it's the three people that he has been spiritually investing in saying, I'm not going to do it. 
He's, they're standing up, they're sewing, saying no. Who does that sound like? Daniel. In the midst of the empire, Daniel has multiplied himself into three other people. Daniel was the leader and he's discipled these guys. Remember in Jeremiah 29, it talks about how this is what it looks like to, to put down roots. You're going to build houses, you're going to plant gardens, you're going to find the people that are going to be your family. If you're having kids, have kids. But there was this understanding that family went beyond just the biological family. There's a, a spiritual passing on that was built into their culture that they understood. Daniel was not married. And what did he do? He continued to pass down these things into his family. So it is not surprising that his spiritual family just do the same things that their leader had done. Daniel, I will not defile myself. Three chapters later, the people that he has discipled and invested in, I'm not going to bow down. In the midst of the pressure, in the swirling seas, in the chaos of the empire, he's had the foresight to be like, I'm going to do what the prophet said. I'm going to multiply myself in the lives of others. Some people are called to multiply themselves by having more kids. That was not Daniel's call. What did he still do? He still multiplied himself. Some people's first disciples are their kids. That doesn't mean that they aren't making other disciples too. Some people's disciples are the people that they are investing in. And that is the spiritual children that God has put in front of them. Let's keep reading. So if, 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 Daniel, if Daniel's call is not only to survive but to stay faithful, the first thing that he did is that there's, he had to say no. The second thing that he did is he was able to multiply himself. The third thing, there's a, uh, there's a decree that has gone out. This is where we started the story. In Daniel chapter 6, there's a decree that has gone out. These guys are looking for a way to snare Daniel because they cannot find anything that he has done wrong. And so they're like, all right, this is what we're going to do. We, we know that kings have giant egos. New king, same ego. This is what we're going to do. The only person that you can pray to, God or human, is the king. Because they know that Daniel is not going to do that. And so this is what Daniel does, knowing that his life is on the line in verse 10 of Daniel chapter 6. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, they could only pray to God, to, to the king. He went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Now that, that phrase, just as he had done before, it could sound like hey, the day before there wasn't a decree and he prayed three times a day. And the day after the decree, he prayed like he did the day before, three times a day. That's not what that phrase, just as he had before, means. It means something like this. Daniel prayed, facing Jerusalem three times a day, looking out the window, just as he had done before the previous 70 years. It's not taught, it's not in the original language, it's not like it just happened. It's he has been doing this for decades. How did Daniel survive? How did Daniel manage to carry out the seeking of the common good of an empire that he would want nothing to do with? How did he do it? He was just trying to worship and praise, he had always done. You cannot sustain life in the empire if you are not connected to the source of all life. You cannot do it. 
you and I are living in dark times. I mean, th- this, is, this is the challenge for us. Things are not darker now than they were 3,000 years ago. They are not darker now than they were five years ago. They are not darker now than they were 50 years ago. Sometimes it just feels like they are. They have always been dark, and you are living in the heart of the empire for this present age. The heart of the empire is here. And the the, the enemy, who ultimately is at the root of all of the work of the empire, is not, according to the scriptures, a person. It is, it is a, there are powers and principalities that are at work in this present age. That, that is, that's what it is. And th- that enemy, what the scriptures say is this, is that he, he, he will, there will be no alliances, and he has come to still, steal, to kill, and to destroy. That, that, that's just, I'm not like trying to scare us. I'm just saying, like, this is the world. This is the world that we live in. The good news for us is there is hope. And for those of us who have been found in Jesus, we are living in that hope. And there will be a day when all darkness is banished, and all evil is banished, and everything will be put to rights. But we aren't there yet. We are in what, the, what scholars call the in-between times. When we know what the outcome is, but it's not quite finished yet. Jesus says we are to be in the world, but not of it. What might it look like for us to operate in the obedience that Daniel did? Where we, we give ourselves, like in the heart of the empire, to putting down roots. What would that look like? What would it look like for us to give ourselves to, the, to seeking out the flourishing of the city? Even a city that sometimes we don't understand and do not always agree with. What does it look like to, to, to live in the heart of the empire where there's a country that we don't always understand or agree with? What would that look like? I invite the band to come up. The, the, the challenge for us is to... Is to there, there's a, uh, there's a, a general in, uh, in Vietnam. His name was, was General Stockdale. Um, and he, he has this thing that they, they've come to call the Stockdale Paradox. Um, because he was captured in... Um, in Vietnam, and he was in a prison of war camp. And he managed to survive uh, for the better part of a decade, uh, being tortured day after day after day. Um, and he never broke and somehow managed to keep his emotional mental sanity. I mean, like, they, they, it was, and so when they pulled him out, they finally rescued him. Like, they, they just could not believe that this guy has managed to hold on to his emotional and mental sanity. And they asked him, General Stockdale, how were you able to do this? And he was like, it was a paradox. Hence, that's why they call it the Stockdale Paradox. He was like, on one hand, like, I, I just, every day I woke up and I was like, this is what's real. He's like, this is what I noticed. I noticed that the people that were in my cell with me, they would say things like, if I can make it to Valentine's, like, if we can get rescued by Valentine's Day, everything will be okay. And Valentine's would come and go. Well, if we could make it to the 4th of July then I'll be okay. If we could get rescued by then, and 4th of July would come and go. And eventually, people started to break. Because enough holidays, enough markers were to pass. And he's like, at some point, I was just like, I, I don't know when I'm going to get rescued. He's like, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, I just had this, this like unassailable belief that like given enough time, I would be rescued. Like I never actually gave up hope. He's like, that's the paradox. Like I did... 
I did not know how the rescue would happen. I just knew that it would. And I just couldn't ever put a timetable on it. Like, we, we live in this paradox where we wake up every day and we say, like, the world is not as it should be. And maybe it feels like it gets worse today. Maybe it does get worse today. And I don't know when Jesus is going to fix this. But I know that he will. I know that he will. And if I find myself living in the paradox of those two things, these things that feel like they couldn't possibly spit together, I can operate like Daniel for the better part of 70 years. So what we're going to do today, like it's... This isn't meant to be depressing. It's meant to be like, this is what's real. This is the world that we live in. And so it's this beautiful thing. We're going to, in a few minutes, we're going to celebrate communion. So I'm going to invite our servers to come on up. And what the scriptures tell us is that there are certain things that we should do in examining ourselves when we take the Lord's Supper together. Uh, And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed... He took the bread that he was eating with his disciples and he broke it. And after breaking the bread, he said, this is my body, which is being broken for you. And there was wine. And he said, this, this, is, this wine represents my blood. It's going to be spilled out for you. And so when you, whenever it is that you take this meal, and he recommended that we take it often, you're to remember what it is that I have done so that you can have hope. In the midst of this, so that you can have access to the giver of all life. Paul says in instructions on when we take the Lord's table, he says, it is right for a person to examine themselves. To see what it is that the Lord is saying to them. Where there might be things that he wants to, he wants to speak to us. And so there are just three simple questions based on our text tonight that I want to use to help us examine what it is that God might be doing and saying. And these are the three questions. What are the, what are the goods of the empire that you, can, that you could consume, but that you need to say no to? What are the practices of connecting to God that you need to say yes to? And who will you multiply your life into? So we're going to say that the tables are open. They're ready for you. The Lord Jesus is here tonight. It says when two or three are gathered, he is here with us. If you know Jesus, the Spirit of God is alive in you. I encourage you to spend a, a moment or, or more just praying, reflecting with the Lord on these questions. And when you feel ready, like joyfully come to the table. The joy is, is that though this is reality, we have hope. Amen.